This is the Good Fire Podcast. Stories of Indigenous fire stewardship, cultural and social empowerment, and environmental integrity. Hey folks, welcome back. Episode 3 of Good Fire Season 2. Uh, yeah, it's been an incredible first two episodes by me and Ron Good. Uh, just such incredible minds, incredible knowledge, incredible wisdom, and uh, we're excited to continue to share this stuff. So uh, last episode, we told you that we're going to be speaking to some folks from the Gathering Voices Society in British Columbia and some of the cool stuff that they've been up to the last couple of years. Um, so yeah, Amy, I'll let, I'll let you introduce them and, and, and kind of what the, this episode is about. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so we have um, up for you today, William Nikolakis, who's actually a lawyer. Oh, our first lawyer on the Good Fire podcast. <laughs> Boom! <Okay. laughs> but I should say, yay, because his work in Indigenous rights um, and support for Indigenous communities has been amazing and, and inspirational. And so Will's um, an associate professor at UBC, um, but also uh, runs the Gathering Voices Society, uh, which is an uh, Indigenous kind of uh, not-for-profit that's doing really great work. Um, and so, yeah, one of their projects that they're doing is working with the Silkatine National Government um, to bring or revitalize cultural burning practices. So uh, we have um, Russell uh, Myers-Ross, who's um, the former chief of Unestatine, uh, on with on with uh, Will as well today. Um, and Russ is just the kindest man. And, you know, he just wants to bring fire back um, to his nation. You know, they've experienced so many um, kind of bad fires in the last few years. And so, um, yeah, so we're going to talk about that. But an, an interesting kind of uh, way that we're going on this episode, too, is to talk about uh, carbon. So mm -hmm. one really exciting thing um, is that they're uh, really planning to move in, into the, the carbon offset market as a way to fund kind of cultural burning programs. And that's kind of based on some of the work we see coming out of Australia um, and how they've been able to do that. So, you know, we talk about, we're going to talk with them about that, about some of the controversy around, you know, using carbon offsets. Are we just allowing polluters to pollute more? And how do we feel about that as nations? Um, yeah, but a really, you know, interesting and I think different discussion for us as well. Very yeah, it takes a little bit of a different turn, I think, in the second half when we get into the the carbon stuff for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I agree. Like Russ is Russ is a very soft spoken gentleman, but I I think that's because he's so thoughtful and so mm -hmm. he's very open, honest, and and even dare I use the word like vulnerable in, in his mm -hmm. in his explanation of of what's been going on in his community and and his learning experience and and what they're trying to accomplish there. And it was just, it, yeah, it was such a pleasure to listen to, to, to his thoughtful words and yeah, will, uh, it is it, really, it, his commitment to find ways to help is, mm -hmm. is really inspiring, right. For using his connections and academia and everything else and his knowledge mm -hmm. to help further, uh, some of these nations is, uh, yeah, it's very inspiring and, and very, very cool, both incredible yeah. people. And, uh, I can't wait for you guys to listen to, to their story. Yeah. Let's launch into it. So here we go. First, maybe we'll get um, Dr. William Nikolakis to introduce himself to us and just let us know where you're from, where you work and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Matt. And uh, yeah, my name is William Nikolakis. Uh, I'm, I, I'm executive director at the Gathering Voices Society. It's a charitable foundation based in Vancouver, but we work with primarily communities in, uh, in remote and rural areas of, of British Columbia. Um, and we work in, in, in stewardship. We, we support communities to, to take back stewardship, their stewardship role of, of their lands and, and territories. Uh, so a, a big piece of what we do now is around fire stewardship. It's a huge problem confronting communities. Um, and often they've been in uh, positions where they've felt like passive bystanders in preventing wildfires and managing, you know, dealing with wildfires. And it's been a huge gap. So we, we work directly with communities to provide that support to communities so that they can reclaim that um, agency to manage fire in their own ways for their own goals. And so I'm also a faculty member at UBC's Faculty of Forestry, um, where I, I set up the Bachelor of Indigenous Land Stewardship program. 
a four-year degree that's uh, run out of uh, out of UBC uh, Forestry, um, and uh, so it's basically my goal is with the work that I do is to 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 uh, support Indigenous stewardship of lands across Canada and globally uh, to bring that uh, perspective and and that and those practices back. Uh, for managing land, shifting away from managing land just for timber values or carbon values, but managing for a holistic set of goals. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think you That's have- That's a really cool system. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that I think you have a really interesting background too for, you know, being in the fire world because you're in like a law and governance side, which I think is is a really important thing that often we're missing um, from fire and trying to get fire back on the land. Yeah. You know, I've, I've most of my work has been on the ground in communities. And, you know, I started when I was 20 working out in the bush for an Indigenous community that was protesting a uranium mine that was being proposed to be expanded on their lands. And, and you know, that was the first time I saw fire being put on the landscape. And and there was a ritual and a ceremony about it. And it, was, it wasn't just a haphazard thing. It was the first time I saw it. And I was like, wow. And it, it made me go rethink how I viewed the landscape and how lands were to be managed. And, and then I, I saw the evolution of, of the fire management programs in Australia. Um, and then how they've developed and become really, really successful in across Northern Australia in, in not only reducing wildfire and reducing carbon emissions, but protecting country, um, and, mm. and supporting people. The health and, and well-being benefits and cultural benefits of people managing their lands are huge. Um, and that's we've got a, 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 pro, a project now that's supported by the Public Health Agency of Canada, looking at the health and well-being benefits of community members being actively engaged in stewardship. And mm. what are the benefits that you know? How do people? How does it benefit people not only physically, you know, because you're getting a lot of physical activity, being out on the land, but mentally connecting with people, uh, being in touch with your land. Um, filling the agency and being empowered to manage your land with fire. So those things are, are really positive for people's health and well-being. And, and so we're, we're actively measuring those and developing evaluation frameworks with the communities now and, um, to, you know, so they have their own evaluation frameworks that, that they're measuring things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. How did you, I have another question just regarding how this all started for you. So how you first got involved in, in, you know, indigenous land stewardship and, and that kind of thing. And also how, uh, gathering voices started. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was working at a, for a law firm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, as, as a lawyer, you, you do, you can produce very important outcomes for indigenous peoples. Um, you don't have to defend them. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just, I realized that what I want to do is more hands on. Um, you know, instead of trying to wait for a court to tell you you can do X, Y, Z, I thought, let's just, you know, and I, and I engage with, you know, people on our board and, and members, Tyson Atlio and others. And we were definitely of the school of thought, well, let's just start doing things rather than waiting for the courts to say, okay, you have the rights to go out and do X, Y, Z. We kind of went, hang on, let's just go and start doing things that are important to the community. And so that's, I really like that shift from being okay like we're working towards change but actually going out and getting my hands dirty and and, and starting to do things on the ground i think that that was for me uh, the, the point and so gathering voices came up it, it was looking to be refurbished as a foundation and and we had a lot of strategic planning sessions at the time with our board and and others and with uh, we started to see stewardship as a, as a critical ground of of where we you know communities want to move towards um um you know, shifting towards a stewardship model uh, where First Nations are, are managing land uh, in ways that are consistent with their values and for their own goals in their own ways. Um, when you think about it, you know, First Nations aren't going anywhere. They've been there for a long time. They've been managing there a long time. They've got a vested interest in managing land to be healthy. That res- that hum- those human resources and that knowledge is is really squandered in many communities be- without people being empowered to actually manage their land. So we saw that as our big goal: is to say, okay, let's. Our, our big vision for the for the foundation is to see every community having a stewardship program um, across Canada, uh, where they're actively managing their lands, monitoring, evaluating, developing science, so that so that they have a scientific base 
so that they can measure their performance, evaluate the performance of their activities. So that was really our big picture mm-hmm. goal that came out of our strategic planning to see communities empowered, managing it in a systematic way, developing their own science. And, and so that's kind of what started uh, Gathering Voices. That's awesome. It. So how That's do you, exciting. I was just wondering, how do you, I was just thinking when you were speaking, like I'm an advisor for Indigenous leaderships initiatives on their hopeful Indigenous fire guardian program. And it sounds to me like there's a lot of similarities there, you know, in just getting people out on their land and, and managing. So how do you see that kind of, like you were saying that the stewardship thing fitting in with the, like something like the guardians? Yeah. So it's funny because when we, I, I've spoken to a lot of ranger programs or guardian programs or watchman programs and they don't see fire with being within their ballpark. They see that mm-hmm. as kind of being, you know, an emergency or safety issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we go about around changing that. And so, um, our goal is to, you know, is very practical. We're about putting people on the ground and, and supporting community. We've, we had over 40 people employed in our five programs this year in both communities in Huntington, Unisitine and, and, uh, you know, we're about really getting people out, um, not sitting around and, and sort of talking, which is great um, to have those. I'm an academic. We have a lot of those talk fests. <laughs> it's not going to stop the big problems, which is wildfire, um, mm-hmm. you know, ecological degradation, invasive species, loss of food security. All those things are huge problems. And, you know, I was like, and I'm very practical focused. I'm about like, okay, let's just do stuff. And, um, and start working towards it. So my, my goal is to just start doing things. And, and from that, that momentum, mm-hmm. start seeing the, the ambitions. And Victor Stephenson kind of calls it, he, he said he, one of his elders said to him, it's praction, practical action. And, uh, mm-hmm. so we, that's definitely been one of our mottos is just, you know, get it, pr- learning by doing, getting out and just practicing and doing things and rather than kind of waiting and, and talking about it and just, just doing it. Yeah, that's. I love that. Yeah. It's funny. It's it's funny how that most of our progress in society tends to get caught up in the planning stage, <laughs> right? It never gets initiated. But yeah, just <laughs> just get boots on the ground, start doing stuff, and we'll learn as we go. I love that. That's a great way to do it. Yeah, and yeah. we have a we have a really open door policy, like with fire training, because I did get the sense and that it was a very male dominated thing. Amy, mm-hmm. I don't know, like if if you found that oh, when you 100%. started. percent. I rant about it all the time on here. Like the patri- <laughs> yeah, patriarchy, of, whatever that word is, nature of uh, of fire management, and how it doesn't fit in with an indigenous worldview on fire at the moment. And and when I look around, a lot of the key people that that are involved in our work are women, and mm-hmm. it, running this fire work. And I think so. That's been transformative that way about you know stewardship not being only just a male domain, but expanding that. So, you know, we, we, our aim is to have gender parity um, for all our employees. And, you know, it's about taking it back from being that kind of, uh, you know, I think we have to, it's a cultural thing how we manage fire. Uh, right now we've, you know, the Western model is when a fire starts, we put it out and, you know, it's very heroic and, and you know, the, 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 heart, the work of the proactive fire management um, of people going out and doing the prescribed burning and the science and the planning that it's not very sexy or, you know, it, it doesn't fit within that kind of cultural model of, of it being, you know, of putting major fires out and, you know, soot on your face and, you know, hoses and it, it's, it's, you know, anyone can be involved in it. And we've had kids and we've had elders and we, we do a lot of ground and uh, we, we, we work through a lot of ground. So it's breaking down those barriers about fire. And I know, Amy, you talk a lot about that in your work too, about, you know, transforming how we view fire and, and seeing, rather than seeing it as a, a, a foe, an enemy, seeing it as a, as a, a friend, a, a tool in our toolkit. Awesome. So can we just back up just a little bit to, so you had the Gathering Voices Society. What made you, um, if you go on their website, the Gathering Voices Society website, you can see um, the Silkateen um, Wildfire Management uh, page that really details the work that you're doing there. So I'm just wondering what led to, you know, you starting that relationship with that community in particular? Yeah, so it actually came about, Russ and I met at a governance conference at UBC in, in November 2015, and uh, and we were looking at governance. And we just started chatting at, at, at certain periods, and 
uh, we started talking about stewardship and and payment for ecosystem services and then we the conversations and start turning to the carbon firework in in Australia and and so Russ mentioned at the time that he was really concerned about um, the land base around stone and in the Chilcotins. He he basically thought it was you know. Uh, you know, he had major concerns about wildfire risk, which was proven to, true a, a year and a half later when you had the huge fires in 2017. Um, and that really kind of kick-started. So Russ and I started talking about potentially doing some work together about setting up, a, you know, a building on their stewardship program and, and looking for ways for funding to expand it. And, and the fire stewardship stuff was there, but... After 2017, we kind of said, okay, it's about fire stewardship, about, we, you know, not only in terms of healing the land that was devastated, because, you know, we have a tendency to think that land that's been devastated by wildfire, that we can turn our back on it and we don't have to worry about healing it, restoring it, or it's kind of like, okay, we don't have to think about that for another 20 years, but that land needs restoration that land needs healing too and and land that's left that needs to be protected and because if you look at the land base there it's it's going to be decades and decades before that land becomes productive if ever because there's areas that haven't been oh we got rust here now too so speak of the devil yeah so for those of you we were are recording this podcast and of course i was just saying to matt and will oh we never have technical difficulties anymore (laughs) recording this as any (laughs) podcast people will know that yeah your life is full of them so yeah we finally got russ here so yay russ nice to see you again hey how are you doing good we can yeah i can hear you well um so yeah we were just having a, a kickoff chat there with will about his background, the Gathering Voices Society, and what kind of started your partnership together. So maybe we'll just kind of, yeah, start the same with you. So, you know, if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners, you know, where you're from, what you do, um, and yeah, how you got into fire. You timed it perfectly, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> your entrance. <laughs> hey, Dan. Yeah, well, my name is Russell Myers Ross. I'm from uh, Unis 18 and part of the South Coutine Nation. Um, I, I ended up becoming chief in 2012 and ran two terms to 2020. And so some of this work uh, came from when I was in leadership. So I think it was about uh, 2015, actually meeting William. And then I, I think we were discussing that it was around like 2016, we had ongoing conversations around like ecosystem type services. And then when the fires hit, I think that was the epiphany that we would work together specifically on uh, fire management and the idea of trying to uh, prevent this from happening and finding ways to restore it. And then I think in 2018, we were able to meet uh, Victor Stephenson and sort of have that first um sort of kick off uh, meeting and understanding and um, getting into the field and um, trying to exchange knowledge about what it's like in Australia and compare it to what's happening here. And then in 2019, we were able to do our first uh, spring burn. And yeah, and then I think it's been sort of an evolution from there, but I definitely think it's been uh, just a learning experience the whole way through. So I just, yeah, I, so just talking about, um, I know the Victor Stephenson visit to your guys' nation was um, really impactful. And for, I think most people listening to this podcast will know who Victor Stephenson is, um, you know, kind of one of the original fire keepers from Australia who, you know, has been on the land for a long time, wrote a great book called Fire Country. And yeah, came to Canada to your nation to... um work with you, I think, just on fire. Can you tell us what that was like? Um, I know that there's a big thing where, you know, we say like, oh, Indigenous people can't go between nations or even continents because our knowledge is so localized. Um, But yeah, I'm interested in your perspectives on having Victor visit. Yeah, Victor, I've heard he's a celebrity, but I've, I haven't been into the, into the zone to know what is the awe is. We're trying to book him for this podcast, <laughs> and I'll tell you that it's very difficult. <laughs> he's a very busy guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think when he came in 2018 and 19, um, 
it was really i mean i mean i think he really wanted to see what the similarities were like so he he was comparing the plants comparing the landscape um you know just trying to test things out and um you know i think he found that there was a lot of um similarities uh just just from looking at the land base and i think a lot of it was just centered on like the way that the the grass um flows and and its connection to you know his understanding of like seeing the trees and seeing you know if it has resin or the oil or like how does it burn and um so there's a lot of similarities um despite that that obvious um local indigenous knowledge that that we carry um but um but i think for us it was it was just a confidence boost really um I mean, we didn't know, like I say, we don't know his, his celebrity or like how, uh, <laughs> how, um, well known he is or anything in Australia or other places. So, you know, he's just a victor to us, but, you know, he carries that leadership that allowed us, you know, to have confidence in applying fires. And, you know, we're, we always had, you know, in the background, we had the ministry and other people like always worried about escapement and worried about the worst case scenario. And it, it just, it, you know, it's always in your ear um, about, yeah, the worry that you're going to burn the whole country down again. And uh, and for victories, like, nothing's ever happened, in, you know, when I've done done this type of work. And um, so that level of confidence of he being in there and knowing that you could light a fire and that it wouldn't, um, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go anywhere. Um that you didn't want it to go. I thought that was a huge boost. And I think just the camaraderie, like it, it, it made, especially that first year where we only had a handful of us, but the camaraderie itself was just, you know, just amazing. And people look back on it fondly and they learn so fast over such a short period of time. That's so exciting. It's awesome to hear. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask you what was, what was the response, Russ, to to when you guys finally got to to start burning again and started to bring that back in? Because um, I, I watched the documentary on the Gathering Voices website there, and it's a super well done, like does such a good job. I thought of of portraying what this practice is, right? And um, what was the response in the community to to having this something that you know your that your people would have done, having it come back? What, how did it change, uh, say, the atmosphere or, or people's just people's outlook on the future? Well, I say, I mean, for the community itself, I mean, I think there's a lot of learning to do still. Like, it's it's not like it changed our whole community in a sense, but I think we we've approached it by a, a learn by doing approach, and and really the people that actually get to apply fire, they're the ones that get to learn like a, a huge amount and. Like I said, in a shorter period of time, like in one, you know, one spring session, we have new people and, and they gain appreciation of it, you know, doing three or four or five days of work. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think, I think the benefit for the people that are actually doing it is, is immense. And it, I think it, I could lecture to them. I could explain all the stuff, you know, you could read or listen to a, a lot of different things, but it, it doesn't measure up to like actually just being out there for one day to, to do it. And then I think that's where it, cl- it clicks for people that, you know, being able to do it. And then they, they kind of take the, that experience and that uh, knowledge that they just gained and they're able to like, you know, they, 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 they talk about this stuff as well. And, um, you know, I think even for the past people that started in 2019, um, my cousins, uh, Dwayne Hink and uh, Jafan Smith. I mean, they're they're also there, kind of coaching or or saying like, "Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be done." Or like, you know, they have mm-hmm. they have kind of a baseline understanding of what to expect when they do that work. So, yeah, it's it's really neat to see um, uh, just people learn and be able to um, be in a position to teach and to you know, have high expectations of what, what it's like. Mm-hmm. What about for you personally? What, what was the impact on, on, you know, the way you perceived it? Yeah. I mean, I take the same approach where, 
you know, I, I know I'm, I know I'm fitting into shoes that our ancestors have been in, where they look at land, and they, they look at it, need to be restored, and you apply fire. So, you know, for me, actually doing it is, it, it, it just feels good. And, you know, sometimes I think, you know, there's a lot of people I find that caution the type of work, but I sometimes think that there's very little harm done. You know, it's almost like applying water to the land, uh, <laughs> you know, and being able to renew it. And, um, you know, so it, it has a good feeling, um, you know, every time you, you're able to apply it and knowing that, like, there's going to be greener grass or going to be more growth coming in later on. And I just, I just enjoy being in the, in, um, I just enjoy being on the land for one and, and it makes you feel healthy and you're breathing the air and, um, even if it's a bit of smoke and, uh, (laughs) and it's also just like, um, sometimes at least for us, it's sort of reimagining, um, you know, what our ancestors have walked through and, I think William got to walk through this fall where we were seeing s- spots where, you know, we might even see like, uh, you know, underground houses from, you know, basically walking in our ancestors, uh, footprints. And so it's a, it's a bit of a discovery as well. And I think that's, um, part of just getting on the land and just deepening that connection. So, yeah, yeah I'm just, I'm just happy to be a part of it and, I'm happy to be on the land more so than actually <laughs> trying to coordinate everything. So. Yeah. No, that's, I always say to people, it's not just about fire, you know, it's about more than fire for many of the nations that want to burn. And so, Will, I'm just wondering, what was it like for you being an, you know, an observer there to the community? What did you kind of see occurring as they, you know, returned fire? You know, everyone was so excited about mm-hmm taking that back and being on the land and you could the energy is awesome and i always come back super recharged after spending time and and just seeing the way that everyone works together and everyone has a deep connection to the land and that being able to give expression to that is such a powerful thing to to be a part of yeah that's great so what are the ultimate goals for you guys of your you know the partnership with the gathering voices society are you hoping to like, you know, burn every spring and fall, like have that kind of regularly occurring? Are you hoping to, you know, expand into, you know, broader territory? What, what do you see for the future? Yeah, our, our immediate goals for the next five years, we have five years of, 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 of support over that next mm-hmm. five years is to, to make this a permanent program. Um, we're, we're right now developing rules and guidelines for a carbon credit um, to be produced from from this work um so we're developing all the fire modeling in prometheus and and looking at a fire predictor fire predictor model and measuring what the potential uh, emissions are that we're mitigating um mm-hmm. greenhouse gas emissions that we're mitigating from our activities so there's a lot of work to do to get that over the line so that's really our first priority and and to really build this program into something that is self-sustaining um, and that communities across Canada can learn from. Not only Canada, but we get messages and calls and, and emails from people in New Mexico, Oregon, California, um, Brazil, other places where they've seen our video that, and they're like, how do we do this? And and so I think the, the video work and, and that stuff is such a powerful tool to inspire people and, and they can learn how that they can take this, this firework back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just one more question I had was about the 41 people you employed. So yeah. was that for a few days to burn? How did you get the funding? I think people will be really interested in knowing that. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, we have an open door policy and Russ can kind of talk about that too, about how we kind of, we if anyone's interested, we, we bring them in. Russ, I, yeah, I, you could probably talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, I mean it's it's tricky. I mean, I you know, I'm as we're developing the program, we're trying to contrast it to how you know, you know, attempting not to mimic um, you know the forest service or the the firefighting service on you know trying to create you know 
the five man packs or however they they organize mm-hmm. themselves. So, I mean, we we do try to pull together a core team, and then um, I mean, we're lucky that we have available resources to sort of like bring in anybody. So, you know, trying to encourage um, like elders to come out or trying to encourage people and just say, Hey, do you want to spend just a day with us? That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, come on out and experience it and see if you like it. And uh, also trying to encourage the school to be involved. So even this fall, having some of the, the children come out and um, it was a little bit tricky because it, uh, it was a little bit difficult just with the temperatures and stuff like that. But I was able to make it kind of a perimeter with a few few of us, and then we were able to sort of um, bring the, the children in the next day, and, and they got to apply fire to the land. So, yeah, just trying to um, figure out ways to, um, you know, to, to educate and um, teach responsibilities at an early, at early age. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, all of William's work, too, you know, it's – you know, between research and the photographs and the video, like it's all there to really support the program. I think we're just piloting it and then testing it out to see how much more we can expand and uh, yeah, grow from sort of what, even though it's a lot of people, it's still, we, you know, we we still have a long, long ways to go, I guess, to like um, gain more experience and, and have more people that could, um, probably take a lead on this work. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine pay- a more engaging oh. way to get kids to pay attention to stuff than to say, "Hey, you want to guys want to go light some stuff on fire?" What? I was I was happy the teacher. Uh, I was happy the teacher was saying you can't just apply fire everywhere and anywhere because <laughs> <laughs> so, I because I was there to encourage encourage the use of it. So oh. <laughs> yeah. it's interesting though how to me always our educational campaigns for kids are about the fear of fire. Like my daughter's six and, you know, she came home from school and was just talking like stop, drop and roll and all that. And I mean, it's important, but we don't have that equivalent teaching of like a respect for fires or, you know, that we need fire, but there's ways. So I always take my kids out and just tell them, you know, like this is like fire's good. And my daughter always says like, no, fires can be good. It can make the grass green. Like, and she understands like at six years old. And also, I'll bet she won't be one of those kids, you know, out behind the school with the matchbox because, you know, you you normalize it and normalize the activity of using fire. So it's not like a rebellious thing either um, mm-hmm. that, that kids can do. So, yeah, I'm totally supportive of taking kids out and like teaching them about fire in good ways. I want to go up to your house yeah. sometime, Amy. You can teach my daughter. Yeah, yeah. Our daughters are almost <laughs> the same age, our little ones. So, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, just back to the four, the um, 41 people. So, because one of the things, too, that's always interesting is that how, you know, for the BC Welfare Service and thing, we pay those people, right, to do their job. But for many Indigenous communities, it's expected, if you want to be involved in fire, for it to be like a volunteer things. So I really find that encouraging that you guys are compensating people for their time and just wondering how, you know, so is it kind of on a daily rate then if people come out to a burn, you kind of compensate them for their time that way? Or are these people that, you know, you staff for a few weeks? How does it work? Yeah, it's a a few different methods. I mean, I, I think, like I mentioned, I think we try to have like a core group so they know that they're responsible, um, forward and then we just try to encourage people and and right now i mean you know we're lucky through gathering voices society that we've we've managed to you know secure a a fair bit of funding from foundations and other sources so we do pay people on our area and and then some people have even just been okay with just uh gift gift certificates and stuff like that so there is a, a fair bit of compensation at this point um but you know yeah, I mean, thinking down the road, I, I I do see there's, you know, there's still going to be a need for, like, making this into, like, w- work and people finding employment and um, out of it. But I also do see the more that we do it, the more responsible people feel. And, I mean, sometimes I drive down the road or, or walk in a certain area and I'm like, this needs fire. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, there shouldn't be any qualms of like me waiting for money uh to do it you know so i I do see 
you know, the long-term benefit, the more, um, the more we, you know, end up respecting what the land needs, I think the more responsibilities people will take on to go like, this needs to be done, whether I get paid or not. Um, mm-hmm. So I do have that sense, um, especially that first year with, uh, you know, Dwayne and Jafan. I think that's how we kind of came away, uh, you know, just looking at the landscape completely different. And um, so I, so I, ha- I hope that it, that's the same feeling that the rest of the community has you know, as we start looking at the land a little bit differently as we as we keep working with it. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one because whenever I go on walks, I just look at everything I can burn. <laughs> so <laughs> good to know that it's not only me. <laughs> I'm excited. I, I want. I kind of want to know how how this came about. Like originally, how did how did we, you get the like government to accept? this concept and and move forward with it and you know like allow in quotation marks this type of stuff to happen because that's something we've talked about in past episodes is that governance kind of putting the the brakes on it every time someone brings it up so how did you finally break through this barrier i think the yeah if i could start i I think the 2017 wildfires had a huge impact on it like Mm -hmm. i think i think yeah it was sort of a the aftermath of that I think people realize that whatever forest practices they've been applying or, you know, that they obviously had a huge blind spot on how they were looking at the landscape and, and, um, you know, how they were suppressing everything. And, and, and so there was a lot of discussion about it. I think there was like a, quite a fair bit of, you know, asking questions about how to do it better and how to include indigenous people afterwards. So I think there was a huge appetite to to learn and engage and to open up that space. Um, but there are that still, you know, there's still those. I think we're lucky to have, uh, at least in Williams Lake area, that we do have a, a you know fire center and a lands department um, for the BC government that are open to it, and and mm. you know kudos to the people working in those um organi- in the organization that um you know are are listening and and i i really appreciate uh, especially one of the fellows for um for for not wanting to apply a cookie cutter approach to it as well like he's mm. he said like we need to work individually with each community and each community has a different way of doing things so so he, he's you know taking that as a principle i think is is a huge thing as well and not trying to you know try to fit us in a box in some sort of way um Mm. but i I also think i also think the one big advantage we had is like we we did that that original gathering voices society we we didn't ask permission uh (laughs) we actually did it did the kind of gorilla uh <laughs> gorilla <laughs> fires and uh and uh I, th- I think we i mean we were respectful for the people around us and we mostly did it on the reserve um um sort of boundaries um but but for the most part um you know we did we did the video so that we could show look we did it like we we shouldn't be asking for permission we we sort of know what we're doing and we can organize to do this and build confidence around it. And, um, but I think the one advantage we had with gathering voices society is that we built up funding where we weren't like sort of just asking government for money. We already had it in hand and had a means to organize. And so that, so that we could say, we're going to do it. (laughs) You know, we're, we're, it'd be nice if you gave us, uh, permission on our own land uh, <laughs> but um but you know we're, we have an intention of doing it and we have the resources and and we're not asking you know we're not asking for for money at this point mm-hmm. that's a huge yeah. deal yeah and you know i think that there was a, some uh, approvals put in play like you put you put some applications in for it to get it approved it just took so long that it was like we're going to miss mm-hmm. the burn, you know, burn window, and there was confusion. And I think it just took so long, and and just you have to be on this stuff. 
um, fight. Uh, you have to be proactive. Um, you just can't sit around and, and, and wait. So I think that mm-hmm. that was a critical thing for, for us and the community was, you know, that there's no time to wait. The community was threatened um, mm-hmm. with the wildfire. It was right at their doorstep. Mm-hmm. And so action needed to be taken. Mm-hmm. I keep trying to impress upon people as well that it's such a different risk, like the type of burning that Russ and his community want to do in many nations. Like you can see, you know, if they want to go and light a large crown fire production burn, you know, on the side of a mountain and things that you might need a really good prescription and plan to do that. But I mean, for me too, like to go and burn the meadow out in front of my house when there's still snow on the ground everywhere, <laughs> like we just go do it as well because it's so low risk, right, for for doing the work. And I recently heard a uh, or saw on Twitter a guy who was talking about, you know, that they need to build a million or burn a million hectares in California. And he was saying, well, that's no big deal if we have like a million homeowners burning one hectare each. But right now we have one agency like trying to do it all by themselves. So it's never, we're never going to get there. Interesting. Yeah, that was my big, one big observation. And I'd love to explore this more deeply, Amy. But my theory, just from observing all this stuff, is that Indigenous burning is far more efficient a practice at prescribed burning than other centralized models. Just from what I've seen on this small pilot, I'd love to test it economically um, if, and, and in terms of efficiency. But just from what I've seen initially, I think that it's by far a way more efficient pr- approach to um, this uh, issue around fuel load, addressing fuel loads and, and fire risk around communities in, in, in BC at least. Yeah, interesting. I know Bill Snow from Stony Nakota as well was talking with me about burning and he was saying that they're really against the use of accelerants that agencies use in burning um, to put on the landscape, you know, the heli torching and all the different things that, that go on where they're, you know, putting diesel and other fuels in the landscape. So to them, that was, you know, why indigenous burning practices were so much better because you're not introducing foreign substances to like an already fragile ecosystem. Yeah. I know Russ probably, and I know Victor has his views around using drip torches and, and other diesels, you know. And, and Russ, what has it been your, had, you, I know you've got some views around kind of the use of diesel as well. Yeah, I mean, I I think, yeah, I mean, I think it depends how how and where to apply those things probably. But I, I mean, generally, I think it's as cheap as having a match, right? Like, mm-hmm. so to, to keep it, and I, I do think that just from observing that if you apply, you know, a lighter or like the or match that it the the intensity is much lower. It crawls fast or slower. And then but when you add fuel it ends up sometimes it ends up raging, uh just the intensity of the burn. And um and yeah, I I, th- I do see potentially certain areas where you you have to cordon off areas to like, you know, do back burning or like, you know, where you have to, you have to apply to sort of lessen the load in certain areas before you can apply in, in some spots. Like I, I could see a use for fuels potentially, but overall I, I, I definitely think it, it's probably better for the environment if it just like creeps at a slow pace. Mm-hmm. Well, it almost seems to me like it's to go from like a more spiritual side of it. It's like if all you need is a match and just a tiny little flame, it seems like if it doesn't burn with that, then maybe it's not ready to burn just quite yet, right? Maybe you're supposed to wait. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, many indigenous nations too use like branches and sap to make their own drip torches. I still think that that's where, you know, that the to make a drip torch was probably appropriated from looking at how indigenous people were using sap on the, um, or pitch on the landscape, um, to, to spread their fires. So, yeah, I don't know. I'll, we need to do some research on that one, Will, <laughs> <laughs> to find out the invention of the drip torch. <laughs> so I had a question about the, 
the the public response or even just the response in your community, Russ, around a relationship to fire now that that this is going on. I know this has only been going on for a few years, but um, with like, so what is the response within your community and also outside of the community? Because you guys just experienced a huge, devastating wildfire. Um, so I imagine people are probably on edge about about fire and that kind of thing. So how is how is this how has this changed perception or has it changed perception at all? It's funny. I I could almost say that it hasn't changed that much of the perception. Uh, it's almost as if people have been around fire like throughout their whole lives. Like, and I'm like trying to think of the elders uh, and how they respond to it. It's almost as if this isn't new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even though for me, it might be like, this is a new program and we got lots of like support and, and uh, um, resources to put towards it. And, um, it's a new engagement with government and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, the perspective from part of my community is that, you know, fire has been with us. We've had a long, long tradition of having fire keepers. Um, and, you know, even if, even if they're jumping on uh, fire crews um, over the last decade or whether it was like 50 years ago. <laughs> so there's, there's just a lot of um, experience around fire and even culturally the use around fire is, is, you know, for, for, for food and cooking and other things is quite high. So it it doesn't, it doesn't, um, yeah, it doesn't excite anybody. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Because I think the perspective, or that's just my sense of things, but, Mm -hmm. but, um, but I think for, you know, I think for other people, um, you know, that have talked to me, you know, they're excited to see what, you know, what we were able to do, um, you know, and, and some other First Nations um, communities, like, they want to, they want to see this, they want to see it, you know, start or, um, you know, they're looking for answers just as much as anybody else, um, especially especially every crisis that you see, you know, everyone's looking for an, another answer to, to help alleviate, you know, the, you know, the next uh, big crisis or something like that. So, yeah. And, and there is a, you know, a debate out there about that, you know, is indigenous fire manage, management practices an ideology rather than a, a, a practice grounded in a scientific, you know, a, a, a basis um, and it obviously is right, and so. But what we're doing actively with our program is is developing science around it, um, mm-hmm. and you know not only around greenhouse gas emissions, but what is the effect on on grasslands and and, and flora and fauna, ungulates, moose. So we're actively going out and, and looking at that, and berries and and wild potato. What is what are the effect of burning and 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 being able to measure that over the longer term, so that we can actually. Sp- you know, have this have this scientific basis that we can not only for the community but for others to demonstrate the the importance of it. Mm-hmm. Awesome, and that's something too. Perfect transition there because I really wanted to end too on the the carbon offset work that you guys are doing. I think that it's really unique in Canada. I know that there is other um, Aboriginal communities in Australia that are already basically funding their cultural fire programs through these carbon offsets that we're getting. So I'm wondering if you could just Will, give maybe just like a an, an overview for people who might not understand like the whole black carbon um, carbon offset idea and then get into how you're applying that um, with your program. Yeah, so I, I, I've spent a lot of my time, my career in uh, in, North, in Northern Australia. Um, I work closely with the Northern Australian Indigenous Land and Sea Management Alliance with the Northern Land Council and other land councils. And I really got to see and witness the emergence and, and, and growth of indigenous fire programs, formal fire programs um, across that, that landscape. Um, and it was well documented, um, the importance of these programs. We had lots of scientific data, the work of Jeremy Russell Smith and others, uh, groundbreaking in terms of understanding the, the effect of, of indigenous fire practices on the landscape. And what they saw in Australia was applying early dry season fires, so the cool burns earlier in the year prevented intense large-scale late dry season fires and, and that sounds reasonable to most people right you burn the fuel off in 
and, and then it grows back green. And then later in the dry season, th- there's green fuel or no fuel at all. So you're not getting those huge fires that have huge greenhouse pol- uh, huge greenhouse gas pulses from those fires. So, um, and you had devastation on the landscape. It was changing the landscape, destroying pockets of monsoonal rainforest, um, sacred sites, uh, destroying uh, biodiversity. So those practices actually prevented all these 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 were actually preventing all these negative outcomes from wildfire and so some some scientists and others came together and said how can we um, how can we monetize the, the greenhouse gas emissions that we're pre- we're off, we're preventing from being um, emitted into the atmosphere and so in australia they developed a methodology rules and guidelines around measuring the effect of, of, of indigenous fire practices on emissions stopped from carbon emissions or, or greenhouse gas emissions stopped from these fire practices. So we're learning from that model, which now employs hundreds, if not thousands of people, generates tens of millions of dollars for communities across Northern Australia um, to implement their fire practices. We're looking at how that model can be translated to, to, to Canada uh, by looking at the pilot in, with Unicitina and Honeyguatine. And so the, the nuts and bolts of it is we, we measure the emissions from um, the fire practices that we conduct. And then what we're seeing is that, that fire, wildfire is growing across Canada um, in, in terms of intensity and large scale. So we're having to predict. Now, the, the fire regimes are different from Australia to Canada, but what we're seeing is an increase in in, in in intense and, and 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 destructive wildfire across Canada, so we're, we're developing a model that predicts the potential emissions from fires with the trends that we're seeing, and what our practices can off mitigate. So we, we're we're measuring the emissions or modeling the emissions from these fire practices uh, from a destructive wildfire. And we're, we're comparing those to what we're emitting from our fire practices and what we're, we're stopping from being uh, emitted into the atmosphere. And that difference between those two, we're, we're hoping to market as carbon credits. Now, so there's a lot of modeling and other things that, and we've got to go out into the field and, and measure our own emissions in April. Uh, but that difference between what our emissions are from our burning and what we're able to stop from the, these dramatic wildfires, we're hoping to use that as a, as a, as a carbon emission, a ca- carbon credit that we can market. Um, and we're already seeing a huge appetite for people that want to purchase those carbon credits. We've had several large insurance companies come to us and say, we love what you're doing with your work. Intact has been a great supporter for us, Intact Foundation. Um, and being able to say, okay, the work that you're doing, we're recognizing that it's going to stop X amount of emissions. And so those potentially could be marketed um, and, and either in the compliance or voluntary market, that's what we're moving towards is being able to get it um, uh, certified under the compliance, the federal standards when they come out, also in the voluntary standards so we can sell our, our credits into both um, into both markets. That's awesome. Oh. I think you're on mute, Matt, online. Yeah, I know. I realized there that afterwards. <laughs> we have to leave that in for the podcast. Just like a super awkward Zoom microphone moment. <laughs> but yeah, that's awesome to, to hear that. That's, so is the idea to, to hope to use those uh, carbon credits to pay the people that are going to be doing the burning? Absolutely, yeah. So that's that, would, awesome. that would support the program over the long term. So, you know, it creates sustainability for the program over the long term. And, you know, there's some caveats that we obviously have to think about. You know, are we robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, with supporting energy development and emissions somewhere else to, and we're op- op- mitigating them here? And, you know, there's some really big questions around what these are, but, what 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 the what these carbon credits are but for in in my mind what we what we're proposing is that we want to measure also the, the the social and economic benefits to communities as well so that we mm-hmm. tack those on to the the program so we're not only burning for carbon but we're burning for other ben- social and, and livelihood benefits for communities biodiversity benefits so that that's calculated and factored in into what we're doing that, that this is more than just a carbon program but it's a it's a it's a larger program that that addresses a bunch of different goals awesome russ what's your take on it what do you think about carbon <laughs> <laughs> 
I well, I think I think I mean the intention was, you know, the big thing was just piloting it in our community and seeing if it works and you know, seeing if it moves forward and then as a program though, we you know, we're trying to think how how do we how do we grow and how do we expand? Um, you know, we we just think of like the amount of hectares that we're able to cover now and it's you know, it's it's kind of minus like it's it's amazing, but it's also minuscule in a in the sense that we need to like be covering this much and we only have you know six weeks to do it in the spring and a little bit of time in the fall <laughs> so so like trying to get the capacity built so that you can do a huge amount of work in a small amount of time and and then you know trying to figure out like a you know an economic model that we can do it where um where we can get the work done and organize you know in the off seasons and be able to do that work in in the spring i i think is important so yeah, I think at this point, you know, we're trying to give ourselves as much opportunity as we can. And I think we still know there's probably a little bit of an uphill battle on like how to structure it or how uh, to inform uh, government or different levers of of opening up, you know, the, the whole carbon market. And like William said, there's probably an ethical piece in there as well about, you know, what what we're, we're willing to accept and where the money is coming from. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think just in general, I think, it, you know, the intent is to, to try to have a long, long, long-term program. Super exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, figuring out what exactly, what our work, what it prevents from being admitted into the atmosphere. That's the, that's the big question that we're tackling. And, and we've got some, some, some carbon scientists working on it right now and you know they are working they're working in a new field there's been nothing like it in canada um the standards aren't really built around this work um but you know we've we're able to you know we're able to learn for and, and know that it's been successful in australia um so what can we learn from it it's different ecosystems and, and different fire regimes but there's something there that around the architecture of that work that we can apply here. And, and so we're hoping to have something deeper early in the new year and start working towards uh, developing the program and the carbon program and understanding what our own emissions are from the work and, and then figuring out, you know, what, what are we preventing from being, what's our work preventing from being emitted into the atmosphere? And, and, and so that's, that's the next phase of this work. Nice. That's what is funny when we had that first meeting, I kind of thought that we already knew that or, you know, I just had that assumption in my head. And I really from that first meeting realized how complex it is to try and do this type of work you guys are wanting to do just with all the carbon folks. And then, you know, you've got fire science on top of it, burning. Yeah, it's, it's a handful, but I'm really excited to see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, me too. It's, it's it's cool to see this happening right here in Canada. I feel like up to this point, everything we've talked about on the podcast has been about elsewhere, right? So I'm excited mm-hmm. to see it happening here at home. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's true. I think this is our first Canada one, except for me just, yeah, going on about the Canadian <laughs> situation. But yeah, um, I was going to say too, so maybe just like to wrap up today too, Russ, I was just wondering... I know like I saw some beautiful pictures of you with your daughter out on the land and teaching her um, to burn and to use fire. And I'm just wondering if you could just talk about, you know, that experience, what she thought about, you know, putting fire back and being able to be out there with you. Yeah. As I, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, like I, I want this to be an intergenerational, I, um, event and, um, I saw the pictures that Victor Stephenson had when he first came up in 2018 and, and one picture just like, it was, it was like, you know, those pictures that tell a story. And I saw one where it was like a grandmother holding a, their like granddaughter's hand and on, all right on the fire line. And they're sort of looking at the fire moving into the, into the tree line. Um, but, you know, 
And I wasn't trying to get that exact same picture, but it was nice to have <laughs> our uh, our photo photographers uh, capture a few pictures there. Always and, good to um, have a professional <laughs> photographer around. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I think the idea was just just that it was just you know, I just you know I keep thinking of how we need to like um, not only like share that intergenerational knowledge, but just that 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 picture of wanting the community surrounded by this and and to keep you know keep sh- showing that it has to be more of a community effort than it is like like you know having you know the, the fire center or like you know delegating it to like an institution that sort of just like you know parachutes in and like does their thing and and trying to like develop a bit more awareness and responsibility from within um so and, and like i said you can only you can only learn by doing it and so i i took my daughter out of school and uh yeah spent the day with her and she learned fast and i think she was seven at the time but i mean she was like i think a month later she's like when are we going back to stone to burn <laughs> Aww, yeah. and and it's like, oh, well, the burning season's out right now. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, she was, she had a good experience with it. And yeah, she wants to continue doing it. So yeah, that's awesome. And like you guys said, that's about taking that out of that masculine field and really going back to, you know, where it's an everybody thing, elders, kids, women, men, um, all out there on our land. Well, congratulations, you guys, on accomplishing this. I can't imagine it was easy. I imagine there was a lot of a lot of hardship and a, and a lot of scratching your head, but you guys pulled it off. So I hope I hope it continues to to grow and, and do well, and, and you guys can just keep keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thank you. I'm so yeah. proud of the work you guys are doing. And Russ, I mean, now we're sitting on all these different fire committees. I see you regularly now. <laughs> so I mean, even in that way, maybe things are changing. I should have a more positive outlook. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because I don't, I don't see all the things that you see in terms of like the barriers. Like I'm just happy that we have sort of like you know that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the the barriers in the case of like you know, wrapping people's head around things and there's like procedural things and like, but I always, I always feel like we're going to get it done one way or the other. And, and yeah, and I, I'm sometimes surprised that like there's stuff that gets blocked in other places in Canada. And, um, and yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that all this work is, you know, going to be a wedge to like, make sure it can happen in other places and and that yeah the leadership and that we're able to sh- share a little bit about how to do it if 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 anything yeah seems like it. I, yeah i think too so just to maybe go on that and to wrap up with is that we have a publication coming out actually uh with russ and will and a bunch of other folks on um, I think it's called the right to fire um, and barriers to cultural burning practices in Canada. Uh, so that look out for that when it's coming out through faucets. And then I just wanted to, to mention the other publications from gathering voices society on this. So uh, William and uh, Emma were co-authors on one out of um, a journal called risk hazards and crisis in public policy called wildfire governance in a changing world insights for policy learning and policy transfer. And then Busy Publishers, they had another one come out too in the International Journal of Wildland Fire called Goal Setting and Indigenous Fire Management, a Holistic Perspective. So both of those are, yeah, with the work that they're doing with Russ's community. Um, so yeah, great job on that and, you know, getting the good word out there. Yeah, thank you too, Amy. Your work's been an inspiration for us too, and and your publishing work. So, and and Russ has been involved too. And so after the CIF conference and other things, so we, not only we're we trying to get the video work out, but also get the academic publications out. Yep, for That's sure. Awesome. All we'll, good. We'll make yep. sure to link all that stuff in the show notes too. We have show notes this year, AB. We're going to have more detail. It's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Check <laughs> out the your, your Forest website. Is that where it's going to be on? Uh, it should be on wherever you're getting it. Like if people are listening to this on oh, okay. Apple or Google, it should be there. So 
Yeah, all those links will be there when this does release and whenever that is, sometime yeah, in 2022. We're trying, <laughs> yeah, we're trying to make the podcast more accessible to people. Um, so with a very, very limited budget, <laughs> I would say. So although we do thank Canada Wildfire and others for all the, you know, contributions to this, but it's definitely podcasts are not cheap, shockingly enough. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thanks everyone. And yeah, keep up the good um good fight. A good luck spring burning next year. Probably when these episodes come out, it'll be spring maybe, right, Matt? And you guys will be up there burning. That's what I'm thinking. As long as you can wrangle up all the rest of the interviews, then we should be okay. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. I know uh listening to Russ and Will give their examples of, of, you know, the t- type of stuff they were learning and, and, and their next steps is really exciting and, and cool to hear. So, uh, yeah, I can't wait to jump into the next conversation. Yeah. I think up next we have, um, a study that was actually on indigenous firefighters. So, um, the study is called, um, crap, I should look up the name of the study. <laughs> I think it's giving voice. Oh, yeah, the name of the study is Giving Voice to Cultural Safety of Indigenous Firefighters in Canada. And we have on two of the um, researchers with us. So Dr. Natasha Caverly and Joe Gilchrist, who's a firekeeper from the Interior Salish Firekeepers. And they're going to come and talk about us with something that we don't really talk about much, which is the role of Indigenous firefighters in wildfire management agencies and really have some, I think, kind of shocking and interesting findings that will really need to be addressed by the wider wildfire community. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely an interesting episode. We're talking about the lack of like academic papers, the lack of, you know, quote unquote proof about indigenous wildfire and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, and then talking about cultural safety, which was a term I'd actually never heard before. And so I learned a lot about that. That was cool. So yeah, I uh, hope everyone liked this episode. We can't wait for you to join us again on, it'll be episode four. Yes. Can't wait. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll catch you folks next time. Take it easy. A huge thank you to Canada Wildfire for their support of this podcast. As well, we would like to thank the fighting Gunda Jamara for allowing us to share their fire song, Ween, as the official song of Good Fire Podcast. 